for the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Jesus has been in the wilderness where his identity as the beloved son was sorely tested. When he returned, he heard that John the baptizer had been executed, and so he returned to Galilee, eventually settling in one of the small fishing towns on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. And there he taught and he healed, and eventually he called some of the people who had been listening to him, who had been engaging with him, fishermen and others, and he invited them to give away all that they were, to let go of who they were, their family, their place in the community, those relationships and roles that had sustained and defined them. He invited them to follow to a new identity, to be disciples to him, this new rabbi. And some followed. And after a short while, he gathers them up a hill, overlooking their world, overlooking all that they had known of life, with all its joy, with all its grief and despair, violence always lurking at the edge, poverty defining each day, the constant demand of upholding honour, surviving Rome, paying the masters, living. And Jesus looks around at his new disciples and those others who saw them go and tagged along to listen in. Where would you be in that group of people on that hill? Are you on the hill? Are you on the disciples or the hangers-on out the back? Or are you still down in Capernaum? So Jesus looks at them and he says, Imagine a world where the most important people are the poor in spirit. How different would this world be? Can you imagine a world where we look up to those who mourn? Or where people aspire to be like the meek? That's what the reign of God looks like. I long for people to join me in honouring those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, where all revere the merciful, not the powerful. Imagine a world where the pure in heart receive the greatest honour, or where children grow up aspiring to be numbered among the peacemakers. For the sake of all you see out there, hold in the greatest honour 
those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I say to you, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in the reign of God. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How do you respond to that teaching? This world that Jesus talks about. Can you imagine this world? Can you imagine how people are responding to this world? Some stunned. These brand spanking new disciples. This is not what they were expecting. They can't believe their ears. But Jesus is not finished. He looks at his new disciples, his new followers, straight in the eye and says, When you are reviled and persecuted, you are salt of the earth. Now, as an aside, salt is great for making food taste good and preserving meat. And if we used iodized salt, keeping us free of goiter, but too much, and then it's all about the high blood pressure. But maybe Jesus isn't talking about this use of salt. Maybe he's talking about the salt discs used in the dung fires. There's not a lot of wood where Jesus lives in Capernaum, and people use the dung from the sheep. And to make the dung hot enough to cook the food, they use salt plates in the fires in the fires underneath the earth ovens. So maybe Jesus is saying, when you are reviled and persecuted, you are the salt disk of the earth oven, helping God's rain to bubble away. But if salt has lost its saltiness, it can't be restored. It's no longer good for anything. Certainly not good for cooking, so it's thrown away and trampled underfoot. And Jesus carries on. When you are reviled and persecuted, you are the light of the world. Like Jerusalem, a city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket. You do that when you blow out the oil lamp to stop the oil fumes going around the room. But when you light it, you put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, be a light. Live the reign of God. Set an example of what that reign looks like. Not to get fame and glory for yourself, but so that others will see God's goodness.
And Jesus carries on and says, Don't think that my teachings replace or rejoice, uh, reduce the law and the prophets. And don't think you can skip the details. The details count. But something more than the details is also needed. You must align your whole self with what God desires. That is what those in the kingdom of heaven are like. The scribes and the Pharisees are soaked with Torah. Be even more soaked. Live the law and the prophets. So as you hear Jesus talk on the hill, what did you hear? What stood out for you? What surprised you? What questions do you have for Jesus? How do you want to respond? you to have a conversation about what you heard, what stood out, what surprised, what your questions are, and how you want to respond. Turn to your neighbour, have a chat. So what did you hear? What were the questions? There might be one or two. There might not be. Who'd like to start? Well, the first thing was the, the asking someone to give up their whole family and their whole life to go and follow him. Yep. That's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure we can answer that because we don't know what he's been teaching beforehand. I, we have a summary which was about repent. But how he explained that uh, and the fact that Matthew and Luke both have uh, this but different versions. So Luke's version is the Sermon on the Plain. It's not even on a mount. Uh, and it's just... Um, blessed are or honoured are the poor and the hungry rather than those who thirst and hunger and thirst for righteousness uh, he's, uh, this clearly was a central chunk of his teaching so it's, it's stuck people got that this was pretty important I don't know that in, in some ways what Jesus was doing was similar to what other people were doing at the same time we know that from other authors like um, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and then there are a couple of Jewish writers around the same time who talk about similar things, but uh, in other ways it was different. So, yeah. 
It's certainly a very different way of seeing the world, and I think we miss that often with the Beatitudes because we're just so used to them that we've kind of domesticated them. They've lost their power, really. Which is why I did them that way today. Any other questions or comments? No one was surprised that we are supposed to keep every jot and tittle of the law. Yot. So in fact, it's the smallest letter in Hebrew and the tiniest little piece of a letter in Hebrew is what he's saying. So it is the, he is talking about the details. And it is surprising, isn't it? Because we're used to Paul. And Paul really does say that the that Jesus has surpassed the law and that we don't need to worry about it. So he's the one that actually argues that Gentile, like Jews still had to keep the law. Paul never said Jews didn't have to keep the law, but he said Gentiles didn't have to keep the law. So that's where his thing was about. But some people at the time did hear him saying that Jews didn't have to, to keep the law and he was... Just trying to, if you read Romans, his is much more around, well, yes, you have to keep the law because that's who you are, but it doesn't make you better than everyone else, which is what they thought. Um, does anyone have any kind of ideas about what Jesus is talking about there? Because we, Matthew is writing after Paul. So Paul comes after Matthew in our Bibles, but actually Matthew is writing after Paul and Mark. And both Paul and Mark, particularly Mark, is the Lord's done. So this is Matthew's response to that. And Jesus healed He did. Got into trouble for it. Got into trouble. So he broke the law himself. In a way. In a way. I don't think he did, but in a sense he did. So I think the key line is when Jesus talks about fulfilling. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come, not come to abolish but to fulfill. So what we need to keep reminding ourselves is that within the rabbinic tradition, there isn't one way of reading scripture. There are multiple ways. Like I've said this before, when Bonnie and I went to the Seder, the Passover meal with the Jewish community in uh, Hamilton a couple of years ago, their liturgy has a conversation between rabbis in it as part of the text. Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this. There's four different takes on one piece of scripture within their liturgy. So when you are going through that, you are given four, three or four different interpretations of what a piece of the story means. And so within Judaism, there isn't one way of understanding scripture. There are multiple ways of reading scripture. And the, and the idea of the conversation is that you have a deeper understanding of what Scripture is saying and what God is saying through that Scripture. So 
reading scripture is much more about knowing what the rabbis have said in the past and being interpreting that to the new situation. And so Matthew has been given to Jewish scholars for their comment. And their comment is, he is being a rabbi. He is basically building on what others have said before him and saying that I say to you, that's a rabbinic phrase, this is my interpretation. So this is how I'm building on what has gone on before. So he is offering an interpretation of how we are to read Torah. So yes, you have to read Torah, but this is how I think you should read it. So within the details, these are the overriding principles that you have to keep in mind. And the Beatitudes hold those overriding principles. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that we often read Torah as if it is, um, if we obey the law, we will get to heaven, we will be with God. It's a way of earning God's grace. But actually, in the story, the grace has already come. So, God has already rescued the Hebrew people out of Egypt. What did they do to deserve that rescuing? Nothing. God chose to rescue them. They're in the wilderness. So how do you respond to a God who has rescued you even though you have done nothing to deserve that? And how do you live in the presence of that God? Because God is in their midst, in the tent of the tabernacle, leading them by a pillar of a, a, pillar of, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. So God is there in the midst. How do you live with God in your midst, this God who has just rescued you? That's what Torah is. How to live in the presence of God. So we need to keep that in mind. And that fulfilling of it for Jews was all about the covenants. So the covenants were that through Israel, God would restore, would restore Israel and renew creation. And all life that lives in creation. So Israel is the key part of that. Well, how does Israel... How is Israel restored? By keeping Torah. And then God can work through them to renew creation. So the keeping of Torah then is not about I'm going to get into heaven, which is what we Christians have made it, but how does God renew creation? So that's, that's what it's all about. And if you listen to Isaiah, that's what Isaiah is talking about. It is the renewal of all of creation. And it's, the, and it's the restoration of Israel to fulfill its covenant responsibilities. And then that's where you get all those issues about justice coming to the fore, which are weaved all through Torah. So, so we need to keep that in mind, those endpoints and where Torah comes from. And then think about what is Jesus saying when he says, I have come to fulfill. What does that look like for us in our place? So I have one last question for you to think about. So as we would, as I was thinking about this during the week, it sounds quite hard being salt and light. I'll go back to that one. 
But I thought that, that down the ages there have been people who have been salt and light. So on Tuesday we remembered the martyrs of Japan. Uh, so when the Christian church went there, there it flourished and thrived and then uh, it was a Jesuit and Franciscan um, mission and then the probably the shoguns actually, I think the shoguns were all powerful by this point. Uh, decided that Christianity came from the West and they were troubled by the Western influence. So they banned Christianity and they executed anyone, all the missionaries and anyone, or they tried to break the missionaries and uh, executed people. Uh, in their thousands, crucified them. And then in the 1800s, when the missionaries were allowed back in, they were staggered to find pockets of Christians around Japan who had held on to that faith and had secretly been Christians without priests but still um, baptising, teaching. So for me that was in those communities there were these groups who were light, who were salt, quietly working away. But there are big examples of that. Like in, our, in my tradition, there's Francis and Claire and then the Franciscan martyrs of Japan. And there's a few weeks ago, there were the first martyrs of Morocco and, uh, and etc. So these are people, again, who went to change the world. And in New Zealand, Aotearoa, New Zealand, we have stories like Suzanne O'Bear who came here and the mission that she did uh, and others. So my question for you is, who has been salt and light for you? Who has personally or stories that have inspired you? People who have been salt and light in their communities. And what does that teach you about how to be salt and light in our community today? So have a conversation with your neighbours about that. Who has been salt and light for you? And what does that teach you about how to be salt and light in our communities today? Thank you.